I know that many of you are missing your Easter traditions. And we all have our favorite traditions, right? I know for some of you it was the ability to go and shop for, a, for some new clothes to, to wear on Easter Sunday. Some of you I know today are you're missing the fact that you can't sport those new duds here this morning. Others of you, man, you are missing and you're upset that there's not going to be that family picture in front of the church so you can post on Instagram. Well, actually, the reality is you, you can take a family picture and, and post it on Instagram this Easter, but the, the problem is you probably haven't showered in a few days and your hair's no doubt messy and those sweatpants certainly don't replace a new set of clothes, but, but you can post those pictures and we would love to see them. In fact, you can post them and, and uh, tag me because I would love to see uh, how y'all are looking this morning. But here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to look at the people that you're sheltered in place with, those folks that are sitting there in your living room, and I want you to look at them, and I want you to say, you look great. Go ahead, do it right there in your living room. All right, great. Now what I want you to do is I want you to look at them, and I want you to say, who cares? Now, before you log off, you say, man, this pastor is really cruel. He's really mean. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to take this opportunity, this unique opportunity that we have that has disrupted all of our favorite traditions, and I want us to focus on the core of our faith. I want us to focus on the foundation of our faith. Today's message is going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is a chapter that is arguably one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he is recentering their ideas and their thoughts on the central message of the Bible. He is, he is focusing their attention on the foundation of their faith. And in this chapter, he just gets back to the simplicity of our faith. In fact, what Paul calls this, he says, this, what I'm writing to you today, is of first importance. That's where we're going to be today. So before we get to our text, here's what I want to do. I want to lay all of my cards on the table. If you're watching this morning, I want you to know, and I, that I, I'm, I'm going to say it up front, what my, what my goal is, what my plan is. And here's what I would love for you to do. I would love for you to consider becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. I would love for you to consider, even if it's not your thing, even if you're not into church, even if you're not into religion, even if you've never considered it before, I want you to consider becoming a follower of Jesus. I want you to consider becoming a, Christ, becoming a Christian even if you've known some, even if you've worked for some, even if you're married to one. I want you to consider becoming a Christian. I want you to consider becoming a Christian even if you think we're all hypocrites. Even, even if you have had a bad church experience in the past, I want you to consider it. I want you to consider becoming a Christian even though you have lots of questions, doubts, and concerns. I want you to consider it. Not commit to it, but just to consider it. Consider becoming a follower of Jesus because of Easter. And here's, here's some great news for you. The foundation of our faith, the foundation of the Christian faith, is not based on the behavior of Christians. 
The foundation of our Christian faith is not based on having all of our questions answered. The foundation of our Christian faith is what we celebrate at Easter. You see, Christianity stands or it falls on the historical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the way the Apostle Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 15. And he said this, And if Christ it has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, if Jesus is not alive today, then there is absolutely no reason for you to be listening to this sermon right now. There's absolutely no reason for you to be going to church once we're able to meet again. He's saying if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then what you're doing is wasting time. It's in vain. There's no purpose for it. There's no reason for any of this if Jesus did not rise from the grave. But then he goes on to say, skipping down to verse 17, he says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they too have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only. So what he's saying here, if, all we, if, if the only purpose for our belief in Jesus is not for eternal life, not for eternity, if it's just for the life that you and I are living right now because he did not raise from the dead, listen to what he says, we are, uh, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're to be pitied. See, Paul saw this direct correlation between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of His death to atone for our sins. The two go hand in hand. In fact, he wrote to the church in Rome and he said this, Jesus was delivered up. In other words, He died for our trespasses, for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. And He raised again for our justification. Paul had this direct connection, this direct correlation between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His ability to atone for our sins. And as followers of Jesus, we believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross. He was buried in a tomb from Friday afternoon until Sunday morning. And on Sunday morning, He bodily, literally rose from the grave and is alive today. That's what we as followers of Christ believe. That's what we adhere to. That is what our faith is built on. And if this is true, then we have all the reason in the world to hope. If this is true, we can rest assured that our sins have been forgiven. If this is true, then we can know for certain that our eternity is secure. If the resurrection is true, we can trust Jesus as the source of our inner peace and our security. If it's all true. However, if it's not true, if Jesus did not rise from the grave, then all of this is a complete waste of time. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. 
And so regardless of your religious background, regardless of your story, regardless of where you've been and who you are, we all have something to do with Jesus Christ. Because if the resurrection is true, then all of it's true. And if the resurrection is not true, then none of it's true. And when it comes to the resurrection, there are really three primary arguments or primary positions where the resurrection can be. First of all, the resurrection is false. It is the greatest hoax of all time perpetrated by Jesus' disciples. And it's just absolutely false. Or the resurrection is fiction. It's just ancient myth that is that has embellished the stories of Jesus uh, through over time to turn him into someone he actually never intended to be. Or the third option is that the resurrection is fact. And the New Testament accurately declares the truth about Jesus' life, bur- death, burial, and resurrection. Those are really the only three options that we have. And in Paul's day, they had uh, this world, two competing worldviews, two philosophies that kind of drove the day. And, and these philosophies were, were concerning life and life after death. And there were two groups of people that, that predominantly led in the discussion in, in, in the Greek world in that day. And there were these men and, and women, these, these folks that they called the Stoics. Now, the Stoics were pantheists. They believed that God was everywhere, that God was in all things. And they believed that reason was the chief end of man. They thought that their morals and their values were what made life worth living. The Stoics, their motto was this, live each day as if it were your last. Be the best person that you can possibly be through morals and values as if this were your last day. That was their model. That's what they lived by. So you had the Stoics on one hand, but on the other hand, you had this group called the Epicureans. Now the Epicureans, they didn't believe God existed at all. Their their thought process was, and what they believed was that pleasure was the chief end of man. Their motto was YOLO, you only live once. If it feels good, do it. And so when it came to life and life after death, both of these groups of people left us without meaning, without purpose, without hope. Because they didn't buy into uh, an idea of life after death. On one hand, you had a group of people that that said, listen, life is about being your best and doing your best, so make the most of it. And you had another group of people that said, this is the only life you get. So enjoy it as much as possible, regardless of who you hurt. And then Paul and these other followers of Jesus, they come along, and they start preaching a new message. They start teaching a new message. And their message is is not not about pleasure and not about reason. They say life is bigger than pleasure. Life is bigger than reason. And they say the chief end of man is this. It is to know God. And to enjoy Him forever. See, these Christians come along and Christianity says that you and I are, don't just have to endure life. And life's just not about us enjoying life. We can actually have life. 
Jesus said you can have life and have it abundantly. In other words, you and I are promised abundant life in Christ. But not only abundant life here on this earth, we have eternal life for the rest of our lives in the presence of God. So Christianity taught a completely different message. It said if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can have life. You can have abundant life and you can have eternal life. And it is in this context that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And as he's writing them, he's talking to them about the reality of the resurrection. And he's reminding them of the good news of the gospel. That's his purpose in writing this particular section of Corinthians. And so Paul is showing the church that Christianity is not based on some set of ideas or philosophies, that the gospel is not a set of rules that we have to follow or rituals that we have to do. It's not, the gospel is not even the Ten Commandments or, or the Sermon on the Mount. No, what he's saying is what he's going to show us that the gospel is a series of facts concerning the work and person of Jesus Christ. Listen to how Paul expresses it. Back in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. And he says it this way. Now I want to remind you. So he's reminding them of the gospel. He says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I proclaim to you, which you received and in which you stand. In other words, they had believed the gospel. They had trusted in the gospel. And he's just reminding them, listen, this is the same gospel I preached to you. I just want to remind you of it. In verse 2, he says, By which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached, unless you believed in vain. Then in verse 3, For I delivered to you of first importance. In other words, he's saying, listen, regardless of what else has crept into the church, regardless of what you believe now, this is of first importance. This is the main thing. If you want to keep the main thing the main thing, this is it. And he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures. That He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so Paul is saying this is the Gospel. What is the Gospel? The Gospel is that Christ died for our sins. That He was buried in a tomb. And that He rose again three days later. That is the gospel. The gospel does not tell us what you and I have to do. It doesn't give us rules to follow. What the gospel tells us is what Christ has done on our behalf. He died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again three days later. That is the gospel. Those are the facts. Now some of you are saying, well, well Eric, that's great, but, but I don't even believe the Bible. So those facts are meaningless. Those facts don't tell me anything. Those facts can't be proven because I don't believe the Bible. Listen, that's okay here. There's no problem because listen, the proof of the resurrection, the proof of the resurrection is not only found in the Scriptures, it is rooted in historical evidence. It is rooted in history. That's why Paul says he died. It is a historical fact that very few would, would intellectually argue against that a man named Jesus who lived in Nazareth died on a Roman cross around 33 AD. It's a historical fact. Not just biblical evidence, but historians in that time wrote about the story of this man named Jesus dying on a cross. 
We know for a fact that Jesus was crucified. But then Paul says that he was buried. Why does he say that he was buried? Why is that important for him to add that point? He didn't want us to be confused with, with the idea that Jesus may have hung on a cross but never died on a cross. So his resurrection would be, uh, would be, would be in vain. But no, what he, wanted to, what he wanted us to know is that he died. That he was buried. Why? Because two men, a man named Nicodemus and a man named Joseph of Arimathea, they knew Jesus. And after his death, after he hung on that cross, they asked for his body. And they received his body, and they knew it was Jesus, and they knew that he was dead. And why do, they know, why do, we, know that he was why do we know that they knew he was dead? Because they took his body and they wrapped it in spices and wrapped it in, in burial linens that weighed about 75 pounds, which would have been the custom of the day. And they wrapped his body and they placed him in an empty tomb because they knew he was dead. Then, Jesus, then Paul adds this. He says, finally, he says he rose from the grave three days later. See, historically, we know that the tomb was empty shortly after his burial. Secular historians have written about the fact that there was an empty tomb and it was all the buzz in Jerusalem. That nobody knew what had happened to the body. That people were confused. They didn't, they didn't understand. And then as if Paul anticipated our questions, as if Paul anticipated our doubts and concerns, saying, listen, Paul, how, how can we know that he rose from the grave. How, how can we know that the resurrection actually took place? I mean, I get the fact that the man died. I understand that. I mean, we all die at some point, right? So we can argue and say, listen, I understand that he died. And I get that he was buried. I mean, that's usually what happens after someone dies. You bury them. But this whole idea of the resurrection, that's just way too far-fetched. That's just way too out there, Paul. And so as if he anticipates our questions, listen to what he writes next in verse 5. He says this, And then, after the resurrection, he appeared to Cephas, who was also Peter. Then to the twelve, those were those twelve men that followed him those three years of his earthly ministry. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then he appeared to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Speaking of Paul. Listen, the proof of the resurrection is in the witnesses. It's in the fact that Paul declared and showed all these various witnesses. You cannot ignore the witnesses. In fact, Paul tells you that there are 500 brothers, which means he's not counting the women and children that had seen Jesus, just the men. He's saying there's 500 men that have seen Jesus, and most of them are still alive. If you don't believe me, go ask them. Go ask them for yourself. Listen, any lawyer in the world would love to have as many witnesses as Paul just declared to back up his case. I mean, you think about it, if you're, in, if you're in, 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 in a courtroom and a lawyer brings across over 500 witnesses on the list, the judge is going to be like, well, that's, you don't need that many to make your case. And yet, that's exactly what Paul just did in order to prove the resurrection. 
First of all, he says he appears to Peter. Why Peter first? Well, if you remember the story, Peter was the one that denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. And so I believe Peter met with Jesus, Jesus met with Peter first, not to condemn him, but to offer him grace and to offer him mercy. Not only that, he says he also appeared to the twelve, to the, to the disciples. These were men who walked with Jesus for three years. These were the men who knew Jesus the best. These were the men who had the most intimate relationships with Jesus. These were his apprentices, and he walked with them. These men also deserted him after he was arrested. Paul says he appeared to them. He quelched all their doubts. He proved that he was alive. Then it says he, then next he says he was seen by 500 people, 500 men. All saw him at the same time. In other words, this couldn't have been imagination. This couldn't have been deception. You may be able to deceive a couple of people. You may even be able to deceive, if you're really good, a handful of people. But there's absolutely no way you're going to be able to deceive over 500 people at the same time. So Paul adds that and shows that in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in this chapter. And then he says, finally, he was seen by James and by Paul. Now you've got to understand James and Paul. James was, was Jesus' half-brother. He was the younger brother of Jesus. And James, throughout Jesus' three years of earthly ministry, before his death on the cross and before his resurrection, James was a skeptic. He didn't buy into all these things that Jesus was teaching. But, and can you blame him? I mean, think about it. If your brother comes to you and says, hey, listen, I am the Son of God. You're going to look at him and say, yeah, and you just proved just how crazy you actually are. And so James was the skeptic. He didn't believe what Jesus was teaching. And then Paul, Paul on the other hand, Paul was a persecutor of the church. Paul set out to destroy the church, to arrest Christians. In fact, he was there when Stephen, the first martyr of Christianity, was being stoned to death. Paul was right there holding the coats of Stephen's accusers. And it is, and Paul is showing us, listen, both of us became followers of Jesus after we saw him face to face. Both of us believed his message the moment we had a personal encounter with the resurrected Christ. In fact, all the people that saw Jesus alive had their lives radically transformed. Not only do we read it about it in Scripture, we read it about it in history. That something happened to these followers of Jesus the moment they proclaimed that He had risen from the dead. Their lives were radically transformed. They went from cowards and skeptics and persecutors of the church to boldly proclaiming that they have seen Jesus alive. To boldly preaching the resurrection and the fact that they had seen Jesus face to face. And in fact, the majority of them, their lives ended as martyrs. I don't know about you, but, but I know people may die for something they think is true, but no one's going to die for something they know is false. And yet all, uh, not all, but the majority of these people that saw Jesus alive that saw him after his crucifixion, resurrected in bodily form, their lives were radically 
transformed. But get this, their message, their message was not come follow our religion. No, that wasn't their message. Their message wasn't have faith in our teaching. Or their message wasn't even trust in what Jesus taught. Their message was this, that Jesus came and he died for your sins. He hung on a cross. He was buried in a grave. And three days later, he rose from the grave. And we have seen him face to face. Their message was that we have seen him. And he is alive. And he is well. That was their message. And they said, listen, come follow Jesus. Because he has risen. I don't know about you, but if someone can claim that they're going to die and rise from the grave three days later, and they do it, I'm going to trust what that guy says. And that's the message of the the New Testament. That Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. And then Paul takes it a step further. Paul says, listen, don't just believe what I've seen. Don't take my word for it. In fact, why don't you go and ask the people, other people that saw Jesus as well? Now, let me ask you a question. If you're trying to propagate a story of the resurrection that is either, that is either false or fiction, why on earth would you tell people to go ask others that had seen him as well? If this story's false, if this story is fiction, if they're making it all up or if they know it's not true, why would you go and tell people to go ask the other witnesses? You wouldn't. No one in their right mind would. Yet that's exactly what Paul does. He says some of them are dead, but the majority of them are still alive. Go ask them for yourself. They've seen him as well. So what, what does all this mean for us? Here's what it means. It means that while you can reject Jesus, You can't ignore Jesus. You can choose to reject him. You can choose to take everything we've talked about and say, you know what, I'm just not going to believe that. But you can't ignore him. Why? Because the resurrection, as taught in the New Testament, is proven by the witnesses and is proven historically that it occurred. You see, the gospel is good news. The gospel is that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again three days later. The tomb is empty, and Jesus Christ is alive today. And by doing so, by by dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the grave three days later, God made a way to satisfy his justice and to demonstrate his mercy through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You see, the fact that Jesus died and rose again proves that his death was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin. It proves that it is sufficient to redeem our souls. It proves that it is sufficient to adopt us as sons and daughters of God. It proves that it is, it is sufficient to defeat sin and to, and to defeat death and to forgive us completely if we will receive the gospel, if we will receive Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection is completely sufficient to save us. So what does it mean? What does it mean to receive Christ? 
It means that you accept the facts of the gospel and that you put your faith in Christ alone for your salvation. That's what it means to receive Christ. Paul explained it this way. He said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Notice what he's saying here. He's saying there's a truth to believe. If you'll believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, there's a truth to believe. And that truth that you, and the fact that you believe it is evidenced by your confession that Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul is saying. In order to receive Christ, there is a truth to believe evidenced by the confession of our very lives. Unfortunately, many people simply give Jesus lip service by intellectually believing that he rose from the grave. Yeah, okay, I believe that, but they never, it's never evidenced by the confession of their lives that Jesus is Lord. They never put their trust in him. They never put their faith in him. They just intellectually believe that he rose from the grave. And that's why Paul said you must believe in your heart because it is about our hearts that, conf- that, that, that confess and, and, and prove and follow Him and, and surrender to Him as Lord. So to place your faith in Jesus is belief evidenced by confession. We believe the facts of the gospel and we confess Him as Lord. And it's all about a heart that will say, yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that He rose from the dead three days later as my Savior. And I surrender my life to Him as Lord. That's what it means to receive Christ. That's what it means to receive the Gospel. And so if you're ready this morning to follow Jesus, I just want to invite you to take that step. It's a step of faith saying, I believe in the gospel. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that he was buried. And I believe that he rose again three days later. And I confess him as Lord. It's belief evidenced by confession. And so what I want to to do is invite you to pray with me. But I want to say before we do, This prayer does not make you a Christian. The prayer we're going to pray is simply an expression of your heart's desire to put your trust in Christ and what He has done for you through His death, burial, and resurrection. So today, if you say, Eric, I believe, I want to trust Jesus and surrender my life to Him, you can pray these words or you can pray your own words. But I invite you to take that step and receive Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is your Son. I believe that when He died, He died for my sin. I believe that He rose from the dead and He was seen by all of those witnesses. And at this moment, I place my faith in His death on the cross as payment for my sin. At this moment, I surrender my life to You as Lord. 
And I want to spend the rest of my life as a follower of Jesus. And it's in His name I pray. Amen. Now listen, if you truly, if you truly meant that prayer, your belief will be evidenced by confession. Your belief in the death, burial, and resurrection will be evidenced by your confession of Him as Lord. And one of the first ways that we profess our faith is through baptism. And obviously, we can't really do that right now. We can't gather together as a church and, 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 and practice uh, baptism now. But we will soon. We will be back gathering one day, really soon, I believe. But, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to, if you place your faith in Christ today, I want you to grab your cell phone. And I want you to do this. I want you to text the word LIFE. Text the word LIFE to 706-651-8373. It's just an opportunity for us to come alongside you, even though we have to do it at a distance now, just to come alongside you and help you grow in your faith, help you grow in this newfound relationship with Jesus Christ. So please, Take your phone, text, seven, text, text the word LIFE to 706-651-8373 this morning. Now, what we're wanting to do now as a, as a church is we want to celebrate communion.